0: It's poorly understood very often, the, the predicament of the oil industry, even if you want to change, if you want to uh, participate in the energy transition, it's very hard to do so for, uh, for oil and gas companies. And I'll, I'll get into the reasons.
1: Why. Welcome to Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss energy and climate issues with leading experts from around the world. If you'd like to support Energy Talks, please visit our website at energy.media, that's E-N-E-R, gi.media and click on support. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how big oil is handling the transition to renewable energy with Dr. Ari Van Burkel, head of the energy research team at Lux Research. He's speaking to us from Amsterdam and welcome to the to energy talks, Ari. All right. Thank you, Markham. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Look, let me frame the discussion for you. Uh, the environmental movement isn't very happy with big oil at the moment uh, for a variety of reasons. And some of them are arguing that, uh, you know, the big oil and gas supermajors like Shell and BP should just, uh, you know, be sued out of existence, uh, fail and disappear. Uh, over to Energy Media here, we've argued that, in fact, the, uh, so much has to change in such a short time. Uh, because of climate change and the the energy transition that's already underway, that we think big oil's access to capital, access to technical expertise, its project management skills, could actually be a real asset to the energy transition. Help you know us successfully navigate it quicker, uh, more successfully, and meet the, the uh, Paris Accords climate goals. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, so I'm um, I'm I'm glad you ask because I think. Um it's poorly understood very often the, the predicament of the oil industry, even if you want to change, if you want to uh, participate in the energy transition, it's very hard to do so for, uh, for oil and gas companies. And I'll, I'll get into the reasons why that is in a, in a, in a bit, but, so that's one thing. And the other thing is we do need them. Um, I think uh, Amazon just launched a, a clean tech and, and new energy, um, funds and it was about 10 billion so and everyone was really excited about that and make no mistake 10 billion is quite a lot of money um, but just because of the COVID 19 crisis the oil and gas industry is going to lose about 8 trillion in the next three years so there a force to be reckoned with uh they cover a large part of our current energy needs and we need their skills but also their revenues the cash flow uh in order to invest in, in renewables
1: yeah i i couldn't agree more and uh if we have a strategy here with respect to the especially the super majors uh it's in my opinion it should be that we recruit them as allies as opposed to continue to Treat them as opponents, and I think that some of the uh, strategies that governments and politicians and environmental groups uh, are pursuing is actually kind of counter counterproductive. Well, let's talk about Shell and BP and some of the the Europeans in particular seem to be leading this charge. Uh, what exactly are some of their strategies? I've I've heard them, uh, you know, talk about becoming electrical utilities. Building, they're already building wind and solar farms. They're buying up. E v charging uh, infrastructure companies, what kind of stuff are they up to
0: yeah i think well that that more or less sums it up right so they they are um going with the market so if if everyone is abandoning their uh, good old internal combustion engine vehicle and is going to buy an electric vehicle, then of course the majority of their customers is going from oil and gas to electricity and and the Uh, companies like Shell and BP, they plan to follow the customer. So uh, Shell has been very explicit, right? They want to be the largest uh, global electricity company in the world. And that makes a lot of sense, but it has always also been very hard. So what's happening now with COVID-19 I think is actually an accelerator for those companies. So in order to understand what's going on, you have to look at the dynamics of the shareholders first. So what's the problem there? Uh, if if you buy shares in, say, BP or Shell, your main purpose is to get dividends. So what what you're doing is you're buying stock in a company where you assume that the value is not going to erode, uh, and you'll get a decent dividend. So you your money is still there, and you basically get like uh, return on your money uh, at the end of the year. So it's a pretty good bank account in that sense, but it's not a completely risk-free bank account because your money might evaporate if suddenly the whole world decides that oil and gas is not all that great anymore, which is precisely what happened in March. So oil and gas companies have been really struggling to pivot towards renewables, even if they had explicit statements that they wanted to do so because the moment they pivot, uh, they also lose shareholder value and they basically are just plain too expensive. So uh, cost of capital in the oil sector is used to be about eight eight or 9%, more or less on par with the chemical industry. They've been working to drive it down already. So now it's around between seven and 8%. But cost of capital in the utility sector where they want to go into right they they want to move into the utility sector um, is about six percent so how how are you going to move into that sector by essentially telling your shareholders, hey, we're gonna have less uh, return on uh, on your investments soon How about that so that has always been the dilemma for for the oil and gas industry. you could say, well okay, but then they should just move into chemicals right because The cost of capital is actually lower than the chemical industry. So let's move there. But then the problem is chemicals, the chemicals market doesn't grow as much. So then you're telling your shareholders, uh, yeah, we're going to go into this more profitable business, but uh, prepare to shrink as the company. So it's really between a rock and a hard place for oil companies. Either you go into the market that's going to grow because all your customers are there, but then you're going to have a lower return or you're going to have a bigger return, but then you're going to go into a market that's not going to grow. And there's already companies there. So uh, you're setting yourself up to be smaller.
1: Um, I want to talk about the part of the strategy from super majors, which is in, uh, investing more in, uh, oil and gas that has a lower carbon intensity, a lower emissions intensity. We've got a little story from Canada here that kind of illustrates that. So earlier this year, uh, the Norwegian uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, Norgis Bank, right. uh, divested itself from four oil sands companies. And that created, a you know, the some of the oil sands CEOs uh, publicly criticized uh, the Norgis and it became a big political issue here in in Canada, but I interviewed uh, Norges and and some of its went over some of its research, and one of the things that I found is that they're, yes they're going to be producing oil, uh, equ- sorry Equinor the uh, state owned uh, Norwegian oil. oil company, but in the Johan Sverdrup field, for instance, their carbon intensity is zero point six seven kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. In the oil sands, that number is 77 kilograms, literally 100 times higher. And it seems to me that the European supermajors are saying, okay, if we have to be in oil and gas for a while, then we're gonna seek out the lowest emissions intense or the lowest carbon intensity oil and gas that we can. That will give us some breathing room and potentially maintain the kinds of shareholder returns that they need while they're making this pivot. Is, have I got this correct? Yeah, I think so. So wh- what you want to do is you want to
0: protect your cash flow because the cash flow is what you use to buy all the solar panels, or if you're Shell, to buy a utility in the US. So you're going to do MA activity to, to build that renewable energy uh, branch, and that's going to be dominant. And, and in fact, uh, Shell's CEO Ben von Burden um, was very explicit about it right he said we are going to sell predominantly uh, renewable energy by 2050 right so that that's a clear statement that's a clear strategy direction but to get there you want to keep earning money because how else are you going to buy your your new business and while you're keep while you keep earning money, you want to not be exposed to uh, things like CO2 taxes, for example. So you have to graduate. I was just explaining that they have to move gradually. And actually, what happened now with COVID-19 is that they could make a much more sudden move than I think they initially intended. Uh, So Shell slashed dividends. um, And they Stated that it was necessary because they they lost so much revenue due to COVID nineteen, and that is true, but also it means that their cost of capital was much reduced. Um, also, there were uh, uh, if oil and gas companies were worried about protecting the shareholder value. That worry is more or less gone. Right, Shell lost sixty percent of its value, so. Uh, Protecting the value for your shareholders—I um, mean, that—that that has been taken care of for them by COVID-19. There's that—that's a losing battle
1: overnight. So, so are you argu- are you arguing, can- Ari, that um, that in fact COVID-19 has produced pr- uh, produced such a or created such a severe shock to the economy and uh, done something that might have taken years. Now it's taken months, and that's adjusted shareholders uh perceptions of capital returns yeah
0: and no, well not even perceptions just reality <laughs> so the the reality now is that actually uh they are uh, the the oil and gas majors especially the europeans ones are much better positioned to start penetrating uh the electricity sector and start building a renewables portfolio which is paradoxical, right? Because they're not well positioned at all as a company. They lost a huge amount of revenue. They lost a huge amount of market cap. But, uh, in order as a starting point to start building that renewables business, they actually made progress that would have otherwise taken them probably a decade to make. So this really accelerates their transition, I think. And then while they're making the transition, they will want to invest in low-carbon oil. So, getting back to your question, and that's a matter of risk management. I think if if you're going to invest less in your bread and butter, you're going so the the, the shop that produces all of the money that you need to build your your fancy new thing, um, you're going to invest less in it. So it better be robust. It shouldn't be exposed to shocks. Uh, like the Canadian tar sands have been right with the moment the oil price plummets, uh, these are the first ones to, to suffer. So you don't invest in them. You, you invest in something solid that will be your money maker that will be generating cash for you to invest in your new business.
1: What about the advantage of infrastructure that the, the super majors have? Many of them have uh, uh, networks of um, service stations. And uh, even uh, electric vehicles are going to have to uh, you know, recharge on a, on a regular basis. No, not, not really. No, no. You, do, you don't think that that will be an advantage?
0: <laughs> not at the fueling station. So uh, research shows, actually, that electric vehicles are charging 80% of the time uh, at home or at an office. So fueling stations are actually not that big of an advantage. They're, Sure, it helps if you have them, uh, but they could also be a liability because most of the business of fueling stations is going to move uh, almost literally to your kitchen sink. Um, and that's so that's where the oil majors need to be. They need to be at your kitchen sink, which is why they need to become really a utility. They, you you will be um, looking at options to, and, and I apologize, I should have looked it up, but I don't know what let's say your major utility in Canada is, but you'll be choosing between that one and VP um, uh, for your next uh, contract for, uh, for electricity supply.
1: Actually that's uh, Canada's Canada is rather unique in this respect because uh, most of the utilities are owned by provincial governments. So there are 10 governments, ah. provincial governments and three uh, territorial governments and the, uh, uh, in eight of those 10, it's they're uh, owned by provincial governments, they're, and they have a, a government-mandated monopoly for the most part. And uh, only in two provinces, and they happen to be big ones, Ontario and Alberta, do you have a deregulated market where you have an independent system operator, kind of like California, and uh, multiple utilities that can plug new, je- you know, wind and solar farms into the grid quite easily. The ones that have crown corporations right. and monopolies, uh, that's actually a barrier, a significant barrier for Canadian supermajor, you know, or the major companies that yeah. want would like to maybe transition into uh, into being a, a utility, it's, and that's a problem for them. That it's an opportunity in it's, Canada that isn't available, but that is in, in Europe it's well so that's going to be interesting
0: because i'm i'm not convinced that that's a problem Uh, i think a company like bp or shell or total for that matter will view it as an opportunity so they will bring their the way they do business as an oil company they will bring it to the electricity sector what is that way Uh, international oil companies have always been good at um also benefiting from uh, what looks to be a monopoly so if if russia has vast gas reserves and and you are an international oil company and you want to benefit from those reserves at first at at face value that that's really hard right because uh, the russian government will want to benefit and it's their gas so why would they let you in Uh, but they do let you in because you solve the difficult problems for them So the other assets that you should be uh, mindful of that international oil and gas companies have is R&D capabilities. And by contrast, most utilities that I know have very little R&D capabilities. Their business is to let other people like GE develop expensive assets. And basically their business is buying the assets and running them. So they don't have R&D capabilities. So what you'll probably see is that the oil majors are going to invest in issues that are hard to solve like for example energy storage and they're gonna offer their technology in regulated markets to the monopolist and say well you know we can help you solve these things uh, and it will be much quicker and it will be less risky and by the way we're also investing in it so you you you'll have to pay less but we want our fair share of the profits and that's how you'll see oil and gas companies enter those uh, territories also in Canada, I think, which may that, actually be easier for them uh, at the end of it than to compete in a deregulated market.
1: Um, that's very interesting because the utilities across North America are struggling with how to integrate distributed energy, you know, mostly rooftop yeah. solar into their models. is isn't. <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, but you know they're they're uh, reengineering their business model and struggling with how to do that because not all of them are well situated to do it for a variety of reasons. and if the uh, oil super majors were able to come along and say, Hey, we have the resources, we have the technology to help you solve those problems, I can see where they might have a, uh, you know, a, a sympathetic hearing because I, I think you're quite right. Utilities are not nimble. They tend to be very cautious and conservative. They're more worried about uh, reliability and providing a low cost of, of electricity. And so that, I hadn't thought of that. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah, so one example of that would be... Um the latest the the the
0: offshore wind farm that um, aneco the dutch uh, utility won in a tender uh it's probably about seven months ago now so it was a tender for offshore wind energy uh there were several consortia bidding on it one was aneco which is a dutch utility that specializes in renewable energy uh, and Eneco, by the way, now got acquired by Mitsubishi. So it's now owned by Mitsubishi, but that, that's beside the point. The, um, the consortium was Eneco plus Shell. Uh, why was Shell there? Well, Eneco, as a company, uh, they don't know anything about operating at sea. So h- how are they going to reliably maintain and operate and, and build, for that matter, uh, an offshore wind farm? Uh, Shell has vast experience of operating on the North Sea, so they know what they're doing, and they were bringing the capital. So Shell is bringing the capital and the knowledge to build the, the wind farm. Aneco is bringing the expertise to connect the whole thing to the power market and to make a profit uh, on this fairly marginal business eventually. Uh, so that's a good collaboration, and it shows how the oil companies are, are doing the hard things that the, the the hard to solve technology items, whereas utilities are just connecting to the market in that, um, in that story. Now, this is a deregulated market, but still they were tendering. So there's a, a measure of regulation there. But you will see things like that happening also in, in regulated markets with uh, monopolist utilities.
1: All right. Thank you very much for this. We've come to the end of the episode. Uh, really appreciated your insights. You've uh, raised some issues here that I hadn't thought about and food for thought. So, thank you very much. We'll look forward to having you on a, a future episode.
0: All right. Thank you, Markham. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me.